Welcome to the Friendly Fire Podcast, a Navy SEAL Museum production. Hi, I'm Rick Kaiser, retired Navy SEAL Master Chief and Chief Operating Officer of the National Navy SEAL Museum here in Fort Pierce, Florida, the birthplace of the Navy SEALs. We are recording from inside the museum's own Mark V assault craft, and now I'm going to introduce my good friend, Tim Nichols. Hello, everyone out there. I hope you enjoy this podcast. My name is Tim Nichols, retired Marine and professor at Duke University. I'm super excited to participate in this, and I think we have a lot of cool things to talk about. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Fenway Fire Podcast. I'm Rick Kaiser, broadcasting from the National Navy SEAL Museum and here in Fort Pierce with my good friend Tim Nichols up in North Carolina. Uh, you can get this podcast on Apple Podcasts, or you can go to our website, www.navysealmuseum.org, to listen to us and talk about different uh, subjects. And I'm going to kick it off today, Tim. Uh, we were just talking before the, uh, the show about politics and, um, and how they influence. And it gets all the way to the military, obviously. And I'm going to talk to you about a, a good friend of mine. Uh, I, don't, I don't want to say any names because he's still in. But he, he's, okay. an, he's an active duty Navy uh, captain. Happens to be an astronaut, right? Just got back from space. He's been. He's got so many, you know, uh, uh, great things, uh, un, you know, accomplishments under his belt. You know, Navy SEAL, war hero, uh, most time in space walks. He has over a year in space itself, mm. and he came back down to Earth and he asked the Navy. He wants. To, he wanted to be. A, I think it's a superintendent of the uh, Naval Academy. Is that what you call oh, it? Oh yeah, yeah. So that's what you know. That's what he wanted to do. You know, and they. Pick somebody else. And of I'm like going, what else? <laughs> what else can you do in the Navy to get that job? I have, you know, and it just it's so discouraging to me knowing him and his character and his accomplishments and everything he does and everything he stands for. Why in the world wouldn't the United States Navy pick him to lead the, the young, uh, you know, plebes and everybody else that's coming through that system you know it's crazy yeah yeah well um i i think rick that usually that job uh gets promoted to admiral right i mean that's one of those jobs like a like a aircraft carrier commanding officer that if you do it successfully you become an admiral and i i imagine that uh this guy has built some antibodies uh he doesn't have any friends uh in the in the in peer groups so they all look at him and go, hey, congratulations, you really are the show pony for the Navy. You're a SEAL, you're an astronaut, you've done all the coolest jobs, but we would rather have one of our own who has the sweat equity in, in the surface warfare community or the SEAL community or the aviation or submarine community who we know who's had all the key, you know, like I said, the key jobs, the director of operations, the commanding officer, all that kind of stuff. And so basically they would be saying, if we make you the soup, uh, we're going to give up a, a flag officer billet for that year. So uh, I don't agree with it. I think it's short-sighted. And I think sometimes they have to make exceptions for exceptional people. But that's the military machine. And uh, he doesn't fit well in the military machine. He's a national hero. But in the Navy, he's he, he's an officer who is taking taken a bunch of really cool jobs 
Um, <laughs> really that, cool jobs. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and I, I don't know. You know, I, I, maybe that's it's the, like, not the, quite the right term. Really cool. Yeah, I would no, say. No, but you know what I'm saying. Really like, hard like jobs that happen to be cool. What if I sent you to Harvard to get a PhD as a Navy Lieutenant Commander? You know, and and said, "Hey, look, you're so smart. It's what you want to do." We've basically decided that you'll never be a flag officer. You know, we're going to off ramp you. And you're going to miss all the formative jobs that uh, our community want you to have. So, yeah. Um, but that, that's, that's not a good. That's not a good uh, analogy. It's not a good reason. Or what he needs is a daddy. He needs someone who's a four star who's uh, who likes him and says, despite the fact that this isn't the normal pathway, this guy is stellar. Put him in the job. That's what he needs, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I guess that was my point in the beginning. Somebody let it's, him down. It's very sad. It's very Who's sad. the bullfrog of the Navy right now? Uh, you know what? I don't know. It really doesn't. You know, that, that term bullfrog um, is a historical term in Naval Special Warfare for the guy that's the longest serving Navy SEAL. And um, it, 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 it has since changed over time because of the way the system works and who can stay in and who can't stay in. So uh, uh, enlisted guy can't is cut off at thirty years. You know, maybe he'll mm. he'll get thirty ones regardless of what they're doing. Right now, yeah. if you become um, uh, if you're an enlisted guy and become an officer as a Navy SEAL, and say you've had you know ten or fifteen years in enlisted already, when you become an officer, you start over. Oh, okay. So the term bullfrog, it just means you know it's. Maybe you're a former enlisted guy, probably, and you can stay in for literally as long as you'd want, you know, 45, sometimes 50 years, believe it or not. Um, you know, when you start over, you get another 30 years. But uh, so, at what point is it, you know, do we need to go in there and clean out these seals that are, you know, in their 50s and go, hey, you're no longer yeah. useful. You're just filling a slot. Move on. But I think that what's relevant to this particular point that you brought up is there's no one high enough in the SEAL officer ranks that had the had the ability to go into kind of the bigger Navy ranks because they all guard that job and reach in and go, no, it's going to be this guy. Like to, to steamroll uh, the traditional apparatus people who, you know, they want a submarine or aviator, surface warfare uh, you know, standard guy. He's done all the right things. Everybody can associate with it. And the soup is just his, hit the job right before he becomes an admiral. Uh, no one was able to steamroll. We don't have any four-star seals, do we, um, right now? No, I think we have a three-star. Uh, Samansky, right? Yeah, Samansky and US OCOM. And I think yeah. his time's just about up um, unless he gets promoted, uh, yeah. which I don't... I don't know unless unless he takes the top job at SOCOM. I think that's and it. he's not really doing a Navy job, is he? I mean, oh he's not, no, no, it's yeah. that's a I, I don't not sure how the Navy does that when it gets to US SOCOM, but uh, no, he's definitely not. Yeah. But he's filling a Navy billet, I think, uh, yeah. for a four or a three star anyway. So, well, I think you should tell your friend Rick that uh, you know he's a victim of process and that uh, you know there's a huge world out there that awaits people who are willing to take risks and people who are willing to uh, follow their passion. And it's, he sounds like a tremendous guy. So uh, I, I think that he'll have a lot of success in the oh, Navy there's, and when there's he no doubt. to leave the Navy. There is yeah. absolutely no doubt about that. I was just disappointed when you, when you, hear, oh, when you hear things like that. Um, 
you know, speaking of politics, I don't know if you knew this, but California just, you know, opened up again because apparently the, uh, the COVID is not the big threat that it was for the last, you know, year. And the governor decided to open the state up and it had nothing to do with the recall effort against him. Um, or the fact that last week they just recorded the highest death rate in the state for the whole year. So, you know, you explain to me how the politics of this COVID has come out now. Now that President Biden is in place, all of a sudden everybody is, you know, opening back up. COVID's not the big threat it was, um, at least in a lot of cities. Yeah, I don't. So um, I, I uh Confess that I don't know the details about what's happening in California. I'm sure that on your um, dark web conspiracy theory sites <laughs> that uh, that you have data that I haven't been privileged to. But what I heard kind of, uh, you know, peripherally in the news was that in certain areas in California, the infection rate has started to go down. And because they hunkered down, the infection rate uh, was starting to drop. And, and it's a real burden to hunker down, so they're trying to slowly let up. Now, I don't know a lot of the details about the, gover- the governor and stuff, so I couldn't speak on that. But let me speak on Biden for a second. He changed his goal today uh, to, a, to a million five people a day once they get the federal government up and, and, uh, and running. And if they can do that, Rick, that is precisely what the federal government should have been doing a year ago, which is... I don't know how to say this politely, but states struggle in any type of big operation. Like they screw up elections, they screw up uh, disasters, uh, natural disasters, uh, they screw up riots, they screw up uh, all sorts of problems. Like it's just that this the state government and the municipal government is really thin. So when you have a problem like that, and it's becoming a regional or a multi-state issue, the, the best thing the federal government can do is to bring their talent and their energy and their resources in and say, uh, you guys may be the very front end of this, but we're going we're gonna to create a backbone that prohibits you from failing. Uh, and so like what we're hearing now is that in North Carolina, we're going to have multiple vaccination tents like in our uh or sites in our uh, in our fairgrounds and other places where they're going to be doing thousands of people a day uh you know data input vaccination hundreds of people giving shots at a time areas to observe them after they get their shot and that is long overdue and who's doing it not north carolina the federal government they're going to pay for it they're going to uh build the process and they're going to start pushing people through so Long overdue. Uh, there's a role for the federal government. Uh, if you want to see an example of what it's like without a federal government, look at Europe and look at the EU and look at how the, how many times they struggle with little things when in the United States our states struggle with little things and then the federal government comes in and puts the resources and the expertise in place and then hopefully leaves when it's done. Okay, I'll 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 go with you, uh, you know, about halfway on what on your statement. But I think the uh, I'll the, take prob- it. <laughs> the problem was uh, the uh, distrust of the Trump administration and the rollout of the vaccine. I mean, you heard nothing but negative reports, negative, negative, negative. Um, here in Florida, what you just said has been going on for the last, you know, as soon as soon as they approved that vaccine, people were in a, in my county here, Indian River County. Uh, we're getting the vaccine. 
You know, the, our Good. problem was we weren't didn't have enough of it, or they would have gave more vaccinations out. So the yeah. the system is working down here, but we didn't have the negative uh, uh, information coming out about Trump and him being whatever, uh, and uh, Governor DeSantis. You know, just kept us open, and it's it's worked out for us when you compare yeah. us to other states like New York or California. Yeah. Or some of these other places that are just gonna that aren't gonna recover for some long, long time. Well, there's um, there's less than a million people in North Dakota, so you would think that they could knock that out. Like you could send a million doses and go, hey, get North Dakota off the books in the next week. And so there's a federal role in kind of getting the vaccines there, getting the all the things necessary, getting the data on the people they vaccinate, and processing. Uh, them and so some states, you're right, Rick. Some states do it in better, uh, do it better than others. And I'm glad Florida's having some success. You know, they deal with a lot of geriatric uh, problems. A lot, there are a lot of people over the age of 65 in Florida, so they should be a priority. Florida should uh, do this well. The voters uh, probably are putting a lot of pressure on the government to get it right because they're that's a very vulnerable population, right? Yeah, you're not too far absolutely. from that, my friend. No, I know. Trust me. Either I think you're ahead of me. Uh, unlikely, but yeah. <laughs> that's. Hey, so do you think the military could have done a good, as good a job, if not better than like uh, you know how they're using like Amazon and FedEx to to move the the vaccines around? Do you think the the military should have stepped in here and uh, and helped with that since the logistical support is already set up. I mean, they're ready for war. So moving vaccinations or vaccines around the country shouldn't be that difficult. Uh, Possibly. My answer would, would fall into this category. If Amazon couldn't do it and FedEx couldn't do it, then you're, and Walmart couldn't do it, then yes, the military should do it. If for some reason they were they were prohibited from doing it, but this is like after nine eleven, you know, us asking if we can sail a navy ship uh, into the harbor in New York to help out, and they go, uh, "We have thirty thousand cops on duty right now. We have, you know, twenty five hospitals. We don't need the military to add capacity. If that's not the case, then the military should be available, and that's why Congress buys." Uh, the National Guard in each state to help out. But I think it's really wise to say uh, FedEx and Amazon and others have sophisticated distribution networks in place. Can they pick up some of this? I mean, if it's a distribution problem, it's then it's a data problem. And if it's a data problem, private companies, like they live on data. They live on refining business practices around data. The military is reliable, big, slow, uh, lethargic, uh, poorly educated, anti-intellectual, um, but they can. But if you absolutely need it done, and they will make sure it gets done no matter what. So it depends where that problem falls in the threshold. Yeah, I'm not sure where the uh, where the problem is coming. Whether it's production, whether it's uh, logistics, um, I think it's probably a little bit of of each. Um, I was just I was just thinking about it just because you know we know the uh, the might of the of the Air Force and the and the and the you know absolutely their capability is 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 good they can pick it up um, but you know we we're talking about the federal government stepping in at some point though the federal government like here let's use uh, uh, New York City for example they sent in the comfort uh, to help with uh, COVID 
you know, yeah. because they were, and you know, they ended up not using the ship. So we had all this, uh, this capability sitting there in the harbor to help the citizens of New York City, and it, it ended up never using the right. ship. So they sent because, it away. Yeah. And that's, that's what I'm saying is if the military is there, if you need it, but you should go through all the other ch- options first before you get it. Because if I commit the comfort there, then for me to refit the comfort for a war, it's going to take months. And so they sail it up there and the hospitals go, hey, we have 100,000 beds in New York. You have 2,000 beds on the comfort. Uh, if we slime the comfort, it'll be out of commission for six months. It's there if we need it, but we don't need it. So these cities have amazing uh, capacity, and the answer is give them resources, let them, you know, help them out where necessary, have them identify where their shortfalls are. You, you were, you remember Katrina, yeah, and absolutely. what a nightmare that was. And so the lesson there was, yeah, the federal government needs to get in earlier, bring its bulk, bring its energy and resources, and then let the states do kind of the last mile of stuff. If they want to do that, it's not take over for the states. It's right. guarantee success right. for the states. Absolutely. You, know, so. you have to have a partnership between the federal government and the state. I think so. And, yeah. and, and we that, have all that in place. And yeah. if, but if you have that, that constant distrust of the yeah. you know previous administration, it, it hurts the people. And it hurts. You're the, right, Rick. The politics is what has yeah. hurt us. And I just hope we don't see another four years of this. Um going on just because it flip-flopped you know what i mean now we got the uh the republican side or republican-led states you know distrusting what biden's trying to do i hope that's not the case and they can work past that just to help their folks you know it's just uh, i I agree i will give biden some credit you know he spent a lot of time in the senate so yeah i know I, I, i do think he has some savvy like he knows one of the characteristics so far is every executive order that he signed does not bump up against the legislative branch. Like they're well within his powers. And so the criticism was tr- of Trump was he was signing some executive orders that, that, that Congress saw stepped into their responsibilities. And I think Biden's just general kind of wisdom over time is, hey, look, I'm not going to get into these kind of fights about power sharing. I'm going to, I'm going to stay and do my executive orders in the presidential uh, executive branch lane, and if it if it requires Congress, I'm going to go to Congress and ask for help, and I, I that kind of soothes everybody a little bit that they're not trying to overstep their boundaries. Yeah, but I hope you know what he's luckily he's in a position that he can do that because he's got yeah. you know control right now. He's got control of the House and pretty much the Senate, and uh, he can go to that. Trump never had that ability or maybe he did his first two years he did they, they did have control of the house but uh he just squandered that yeah. away and they actually never pushed any thing of any of his agenda through the house which i wasn't quite sure of so when paul yeah. ryan left um it was no big loss because they just squandered that whole opportunity to do what you were just talking about and not have trump be the one to have to be forced to do it it was congress's yeah. turn to make it That's- happen but they didn't, and uh, they, they totally failed at that. Now that's why, you know, we're, we got what we got, you know. Yeah, he made a couple other mistakes. Um, you know, one was he, he set a bad tone for cooperation between the executive branch and Congress. Like, you, you know, it's almost disrespectful when you, you're constantly 
uh, shooting rounds at Congress, telling them that they're, they're not doing what you're doing. That's not the right way to do it. You really, you know, the Constitution says Congress is an important body. They have a say. So the tone was wrong. And then in his administration, he, uh, he filled it uh, full of buffoons uh, that really didn't know the game and couldn't play the game. So instead of draining the swamp, he kind of in, he deepened the swamp. He brought a bunch of people in who uh, refused to, to follow the process for legislation, follow the process for executive branch action, and it, it caused all of the machinery in the government to kind of underperform. So one of the compensations that Biden has done is he, he's really tried to get agreeable people into the leadership positions. Like the, the Republicans, Democrats are passing all of Biden's nominations because they go, that person gets it, you know, well, we can work with that person. So they're trying to kind of dust off the machinery and there's going to be conflict, Rick, but but there's going to be layers of competence that are going to soothe everybody that, you know, people are respecting all the, the, uh, the contributions, the centralization uh, of the executive branch and the work with Congress. And so I think it'll be a little bit better. Uh, or I was interested if, uh, you know, you might make two or three predictions for the next four years about uh, if there's things that you think might happen that you like, you're thinking about. Okay, now you know this has happened. We flip back. What are your concerns? Like, what are the things that Rick Kaiser worries about um, in terms of our government uh, with the Biden administration? I mean, I think we've just we've just weathered a little bit of a political storm, and it seems like it's calming. But what 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 are the what what things are on your mind? I think uh, what worries me is that the uh, you know on a daily. D- Day to day basis, I think uh, I'm afraid gas prices are going to go back up to four dollars a gallon, okay. and, I, and I think that's going to hurt our economy and business. And wait, I mean, look at we're already hurting because of COVID. All of a sudden, gas prices go up to four dollars a gallon or wherever it was before Trump took over. Um, I think that's number one. I think we're going to uh, lose energy independence. Like right now, the United States. We've never been in this position before where we produce enough gas and oil and natural gas to provide for our country. And so we don't yeah. have to uh, be influenced by the Middle East as far as, you know, at least oil oil uh, coming here through the shipping lanes and, and all that problem and everything that brings. I'm afraid that that's going to uh, end and we're going to get back in that same old rigmarole with the, you know, with the Middle East and all, and all the conflicts that they got going over there, which we're still involved with. But it's like takes it down a notch when we're not worried about gas, you know, and our uh, power plants and our businesses, you know. Um, so there's two. And I think um, I just don't see uh, Biden administration being tough on our enemies. I I don't see, uh, uh, I frankly think Biden has got, a, is in way too close with the Chinese. Um, I have no idea whatsoever what the hell they're doing with Iran. I never did, um, as far as with the, uh, Obama. Um, but they, those, those people are not our friends. They never will be our friends. They are our enemies. Um, and we need to treat them as such. There's three. I think. Yeah, those are very. Uh, I think those are very insightful uh, predictions or uh, concerns. I should say these are concerns that you have. 
Um, and uh, the energy independence kind of caught me off guard. Uh, you, you put your finger on something really important as, as they're trying to figure out uh, global warming and uh, all of these incentives that have been in place for the last couple of years to try to increase petroleum uh, drilling and production um, you know, at the expense of some of the global warming or the climate uh, climate change initiatives. And I think that's going to be a tense issue for the next couple of years because I agree uh, the United States was worse off when we were dependent on other people to provide us energy. We had to secure, you know, we had to secure the maritime lines of communication. We had to secure those countries so that they were stable. They could keep pumping. We had to deter aggressors uh, that were dealing with them. And we still do that. But if something bad happens, we're kind of okay. Like, you know, and um, so I think that's a really good point. I just wanted to ask if you drive a Prius or, you know, a Leaf or, you know, what kind of vehicle do you drive to do your part at making sure that the uh, Navy SEAL Museum in Fort Pierce, Florida is energy uh, independent? I have a Jeep. A Jeep. Six cylinder. No, it's not great. It's not bad. It's not on the worst side, you know. That's, That's good. That's good. Well, you're doing the right thing. Uh, and so I, I think Americans want to be more energy independent. I don't think that's a partisan issue. Uh, they don't. They disagree on how to get there. Uh, some is plug-in car. Some are plug-in cars, uh, natural gas-powered trucks. Uh, you know, public transportation, Rick, like no one's going to bring that up right now with COVID. No one's going to talk about packing people into subways and trains uh, because it's so problematic. But coming up with better ways to uh, to use our resources and stretch our energy uh, independence, that's a really good idea. Uh, the Middle East, uh, Biden, uh, so Jake Sullivan is his national security advisor, and he's, he, he shares your concern. Uh but they put Middle East in the manage category. Like, there's nothing in the Middle East worthy of 200,000 U.S. troops for 20 years. There's nothing in there that's worth it. So what do we need to do to manage the problem? And the only outliers are nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons that can range America. And that's not a manage problem. That's, that's a deter problem. Right. Um, and then on China... I think it's really interesting that you you bring that up, that Biden's friends with the Chinese. Um, I think there are opportunities for friendship, but there's also opportunities for competition. And let's hope that there aren't aren't needs for conflict. So uh, we work well with the Chinese on counter piracy. Uh, The Chinese have made a lot of adjustments in terms of intellectual theft, intellectual property theft. Uh, You know, they're starting to deal with some of their corruption. They're not where they need to be, but they're they're making efforts. and the real issue is we're competing with China for best friends, India, Japan, South Korea, uh, New Zealand, uh, Australia. We like those countries say, look, I don't want to choose the United States or China. I want both. Right. And right. The Rick Kaiser positions should say you can have both. But when we're all together, or when we're alone, you tell me you love me more, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's what I want. And yeah. I think that's just lie. Just lie to me. So how do you think? Yeah. <laughs> uh, how do you think Taiwan fits into this? We can't give up Taiwan. Yeah, like absolutely, we'd have to use force to uh, to keep Taiwan. And uh, I think that the the Navy is serious about not letting Taiwan 
uh, fall if the Chinese try to take it back because it it Taiwan is kind of an anchor island in our Pacific strategy. So if you give it up, the strategy that you have is no longer valid. And so uh, the United States doesn't want to, to puff up its chest and say, here's a red line. Don't do it. Instead, they want to slowly build up China, uh, Taiwan, and they want to keep a naval presence there, and they want to let China know quietly that if the Chinese try to cross those straits, that we'll sink all their ships and we'll, it will destroy them. And if they pull out their nuclear weapons, then we have everything we need to be able to defend ourselves. Wow. Yeah. Heaven help us if something like that actually does happen. Yeah. I think it would be a pretty tough, uh, tough road to hoe to, to stop in, uh, an all-out invasion from China. There's just so many of them. Luckily, uh, there's you know they have to have uh, the capability to cross the the water, which has always been yeah. a uh, a deterrent. No matter where you are, thank God, um, around this world. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I I hate I don't want to even think about it. There's because that's all out warfare there. Yeah. There's there's no big role for special forces there. It's going to be you nope. know bombing and missiles and and, and God help yeah. us if and- it comes to it nukes. I think the current plan, Rick, is that through uh, air power, sea power, subsurface power, long-range firepower, that uh, the U.S. must be able to sink hundreds of Chinese naval vessels each and every day. Hundreds a day. And that's what they've been tasked to do. So uh, that's how that's what it would look like. And as long as you have that capability in the region, you can look at the Chinese and go, we really don't want to use this. Uh, but... But we're not letting you have, you know, you're not going to get Taiwan forcefully. If you can come to a peaceful agreement with Taiwan, we're, you know, that's Taiwan's decision. They have sovereignty. But you're not going to take Taiwan as long as the United States remains a Pacific power. And it's a burr in their saddle, Rick. They, they, this is their, you know, they're more powerful than they've ever been. So now's the time to do it. But the United States is saying, don't, don't do it. Yeah, I don't think the, uh, I, I, the Chinese aren't stupid. They don't want conflict. They don't want a war. But, you know, I think they're very uh, devious at how they're going about taking over. And that's by going into these other countries and investing in them and basically owning them. So a lot of the infrastructure around the world right now is getting bought up by the Chinese. Um, So they have the influence in those countries, in the elections and whatever. And they—they—that's how they're making their friends, you know. And I don't that's think that kind of uh, sounds like what we do. I don't think we're doing it at the right level uh, as far as uh, the amount of money and what we're actually spending it on. I think are a little bit different than what they're doing. Um, I think they're—they're—they're they're, they're like coming in and buying a whole port, right? We'll yeah. go in and give money for uh, whatever. Uh, health and uh, human services something like that you know yeah. so two different things so it's you know hearts and minds and you know hard infrastructure i think are, is a difference i don't know if you agree with that well i i think they're following our model not necessarily our model today and the difference between the u.s and china is our goal is for that country to become stable and then become trade partners with us and not spend a lot of money on you know putting down their people or whatever, you know, human rights, all that kind of stuff. So what we want in the world is 190 plus stable nations that buy our stuff, that let us come into their ports, that sell us their stuff, and that don't over, you know, don't build huge militaries to use against their neighbors. Like that's our ideal dream. 
China uh, is doing a lot of this Belt and Road Initiative stuff, uh, but I think their ulterior motive is there's some exploitation going on. It they it's not helpful to the nations that agree to this Belt and Road Initiative, but if this is the only option you have and you're the leader of a country and what you get out of it is a port, it's hard to say no because the U.S. The US isn't offering a port. The U.S. Right, isn't right. offering any substantial aid. So I think a lot of these will unravel uh, over time and people will get tired of China. And then the question is, China just spent a billion dollars in this country. They have a nice port and the country says, we're not, not only do we want you out, but we're not going to pay you for it. And what's the U.S. role there? Right. So are we going to continue to be the policemen of the world or yeah. are we just going to let it happen? Yeah. yeah. Oh, we can't. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I want all these countries to be our friends. I want them to let us use their ports. I want them to buy our stuff and to sell us their stuff. Uh, but at the end of the day, China is creating conditions for antagonistic relationships between a very, very powerful country, China, and a lot of really weak countries uh, who will ultimately owe them, uh, owe China uh, resources. Really interesting. Moving on from China, what do you think about uh, Venezuela? I mean, they're our neighbors. They're, uh, we have lots of, uh, especially here in Florida, there's a lot of, uh, and I have some very good Venezuelan friends, and they, it's just ashamed uh, of what's become of that country. It used to be, uh, I mean, a a garden spot, you know, people yeah. want, it's like Beirut, you know, everybody wanted to go there. It's beautiful, but now it is an unsafe, uh, unfriendly, uh, dangerous country. So why, you know, and I know what you're going to say, but well, you know, why don't we do something there? Well, um, one of the, one of the positives that I'll give to president Trump, uh, during his administration was he didn't start any new wars. And we haven't had a president in a while that didn't start any new war. So uh, when John Bolton was the national security advisor and all of this, hap uh, all of this stuff was happening, uh, the United States decided to recognize the guy who was on the outs, Guaido, the, uh, the, the guy that won the election, right. but um, the incumbent refused to concede. And so uh, once the United States did that, then... Putin, who was uh, supporting Maduro, the, the guy in the, that uh, lost the election, and the United States, who was supporting the other guy, they had a staring contest, and the United States blinked. Uh, we, while we were sitting watching doing nothing, uh, Putin moved his special operations forces uh, into Caracas, and, and they basically said, our president has said Maduro stays, and he's the leader, and there's nothing you can do about it. And that's where we are today. Yeah. So, I mean, I, it was, a, I think it was a tough decision not to do anything because there was a moment, a window in time where we could have gone in. And you've seen this, Rick. You've seen, we scraped leaders who refused to leave. I think uh, you were actively involved in, um, in operations to help uh, this, the leader of Haiti, uh, Cedrus, to help even, him get the hell even, out. I don't even know what you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, you're, yeah, right. And uh, and then to bring President Aristide, uh, or to help Aristide yep. uh, leave and come back. So the United States has done this uh, in the past. The difference is we weren't staring down Putin or President Xi, who stepped up and said, 
United States, you're not going to do it this time. I'm going to put my people in the way, and you won't mess with me even though you want to mess with them. So the whole time you're in the military, Rick, the United States was the power. Yep. And now we're a multipolar world, and we have to think about it. And I give Trump credit. Uh, probably sitting in the Oval Office um, reading Mad Magazine, uh, he probably said— <laughs> He probably said, it's not worth it. We're just going to let Venezuela go, and we'll look for an opportunity in the future to try to restore democracy. And with that decision uh, came a lot of suffering uh, of people of Venezuela, and my heart goes out to him, and I have some friends from Venezuela, yes, really fantastic people. Uh, but honestly, how many generals have promised that they can go into a country oh, using yeah. U.S. forces and fix it? And how many no. have actually succeeded? Not None. None. No. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, I agree with you on that. There's no sense in use uh, wasting life, but that would have been a, uh, a special forces uh, type operation. Um, could have done something. Uh, would have been worth it? Probably not. You know, in the long run, I don't know, because they yeah. would have had to do a complete uh, government overhaul, um, remove them, and then put in the right. I don't know. It just wouldn't have been clean. It wouldn't have been quick, and we'd still be fighting. So, yeah, and you would have had to remove an entire military, right? Who supported the incumbent, right? And I look at that and I go, that you know, that's hard to do. Uh, If you if decapitation worked and you could just sneak in and get the the top guy and remove him, and then everything would be okay, right? We've done that. Yes, you know, it would. Yeah, but it didn't look that way this time, Jack. Uh, to all our fans and listeners out there, you've been listening to the Friendly Fire podcast. Uh, we're two close friends, lob grenades at each other on political, military, uh, domestic issues. Rick Kaiser is the Chief Operating Officer of the Navy SEAL Museum down in Fort Pierce, Florida. And my name is Tim Nichols, broadcasting from North Carolina. Uh, you can follow our podcast on Apple Podcasts or on the Navy SEAL Museum website, NavySealMuseum.org. Thanks for listening.